0: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. Most people know at least a little bit about Plessy v. Ferguson, the 19th century Supreme Court ruling that enshrined the concept of separate but equal in American law and gave power to Jim Crow. But do you really know the stories of Plessy v. Ferguson? Do you know about Homer Plessy, the plaintiff in the case, chosen by an abolitionist group in New Orleans to test the laws of separation? Do you know about Henry Billings Brown, the justice who wrote the Plessy decision, and a guy who has really deep roots right here in the city of Detroit? Or do you know about Justice John Marshall Harlan, the only justice who dissented in the Plessy decision, and about his legacy of civil rights activism from the bench? Steve Luxembourg is the author of a new book, Separate, that tells the story of Plessy through the characters who made up its narrative arc. He draws on intimate correspondence and diaries, and he shows how Plessy moved from a simple ruling to the bedrock of racial separation into the 20th century here in America. Steve Luxembourg joins us now to talk about his book. Steve, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Thanks for having me, Steve. Yes,
0: it's really great to have you with us. Uh, So let's start with the idea of telling this story, this historical story that, as I said, most of us know something about, uh, through the stories of the characters who were involved. What was it that made you feel like that was the way to illuminate this story uh, a little better?
1: Well, the book has a parallel narrative. Uh, It has the narrative of the people who are swept up in the case, the justices who decide it, the lawyers who bring it, the New Orleans group that test the law. But it also has a parallel narrative of the resistors that precede Homer Plessy, the people in the North, often, and in the South, who refuse to uh, go along with the separation on public accommodation, particularly railroad trains, which were the main transportation vehicle of the age. Uh, And I felt that in looking at the characters, the two that you mentioned, they have contradictory lives. Uh, Billings Brown grew up in New England, born in Massachusetts, came to Detroit in 1859 as a young man to be a lawyer. And you would think, given his, the people around him, many of them were anti-slavery. They were not just anti-slavery in in words, but indeed they protested. They wrote letters. He's the one who ends up writing this infamous, notorious decision, 7 to 1 in 1896. Marshall Harlan, John Marshall Harlan from Kentucky, grew up in a slaveholding family, ran as a pro-slavery candidate in 1859 for Congress. And he's the one who ends up writing the ringing dissent that we now quote today, that's been quoted by presidents and which we remember.
0: Mm-hmm. And it, it leads, of course, to the pushback against Plessy, which takes uh, more than half a century to get to Brown v. Vo- uh, Board of Education, which is this, the, the decision that undoes that. But I, I, I want to stick with this idea of the narrative for a second and the complexities that uh, that you illuminate in this book. Uh, it, it really does show that while we tend to think of these events in the rearview mirror in very clean cut ways there was a lot of complication there was a lot of moving back and forth across the ideological and social divide here um, that that made this uh, difficult for the people at the time uh, to, to sort of sort out and even makes it difficult for us in hindsight to understand how things ended up happening the way they did
1: Well, it's a 19th century, we have to sketch it out a little bit for our listeners. We're not talking about a time when the 14th Amendment, that amendment that ensures equal protection under the law, it wasn't embraced by the Supreme Court yet. And the argument in the case revolved around the 14th Amendment, and it seems clear cut to us, as you said, how could they rule that that separate could be equal? It's inherently unequal. But they weren't looking at it through the eyes of the 14th Amendment. They were looking at it through the eyes of Louisiana's police powers and whether Louisiana legislature had the, the right to enact legislation that would preserve law and order. And that's the case. That's the basis on which the case is decided. Amazingly enough, the words separate but equal do not appear in the majority decision. That's, that's remarkable to us because for us, it's synonymous. That's with how we think words. of it. Sure. And it isn't until the Supreme Court in nineteen fifty four, as you said in the Brown versus Board of Education decision, they are the ones that use the term "separate but equal" to describe the the case, and have have set that that term in our minds ever since. Yeah,
0: uh, I want to talk about the the plaintiff in the case Homer Plessy, who I think again people know that name when you say it in the context of this case. They don't know very much necessarily about who he was he was a complicated character, and the case that he was making or was made on his behalf was complicated as well. Tell us about how he comes to symbolize so much uh, of racial inequality and racial uh, justice in America.
1: Well, as you uh, noted at the top of the hour, we know the name of the case, but we really don't know very much about it. I do a little test when I, I do talks on the book, And I ask people, tell me who Homer Plessy was, tell me his color, tell me what he was charged with. I get almost no hands raised, and the ones that do raise their hands often have misinformation. Hmm. Homer Plessy comes from a French speaking group of Creole, mixed race group of Creoles in New Orleans. He is 29 years old, he's a volunteer. He is asked to be arrested on a railroad train. It's an arranged arrest. You'll see plaques sometimes that say that Plessy was manhandled and ejected from the train. Those are not accurate. He was uh, escorted off the train because the detective who escorted him was in on it, as was the railroad. It was all to create the test conditions that the lawyers and the committee, the committee to test the constitutionality of the separate car, it's not a motor car, but a railroad car act, That's a mouthful for a name for a committee. (laughs) Uh, They wanted to bring this case and they wanted to make sure that it got to the Supreme Court as a test of that separate car act. They, They wanted to avoid having him arrested for disorderly conduct or for trespassing or anything like that. And this law, a law, this was a new wave of laws in the South in the 1880s and 90s mandating separate Uh, it was called equal but separate accommodations. That's the quote, equal but separate accommodations for white and colored passengers on trains running in the state of Louisiana. That's what they, that's what they were after. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the railroads weren't keen on this because (laughs) it's expensive to run two cars when you don't have (laughs) enough passengers to fill them both. And they, they didn't want it if they didn't have to. Now in Georgia, they were kind of keen on separate cars. There was a different attitude there. And that's also important to remember that not every state was the same.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the things that's also important in the history here is what happens uh, after the Civil War when states like Louisiana are still uh, under under federal jurisdiction. Uh, part of the reason that uh, this controversy arises in New Orleans is that this separate uh, train car uh, law and 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 edict is a change from what had been going on during reconstruction new orleans was a place where blacks were free to do things that white citizens were to do uh, before the federal withdrawal from that before reconstruction kind of folds over on itself and and goes away
1: well new orleans is a character in the book it's as much a character as Henry Billings Brown and John Marshall Harlan. This is a city unlike any in the United States. From the time of the American takeover, when the provisional governor from from a, the state of Virginia comes there and realizes he's got 6,000 free people of color. And not only are they free, but they have a militia. Mm-hmm. They have weapons. <laughs> he <laughs> writes to Madison, the secretary of state, and says... Uh, hey, I, I got these free people of color here and they got weapons. What do I do? Well, of course, it takes a month by boat for his letter to get to <laughs> Madison. It takes a month for it to get back. And basically what Madison says is, you're on your own, buddy. We can't control <laughs> things from up here. But this is the, this is New Orleans. And this mixed race group, by the 1890s, they're, they're wealthier, they're educated, they're angry. And your, your previous guest, Christy Coleman, talked about this amazing period of Reconstruction and the rise of white supremacy. And mm-hmm. part of that rise is the is the fear and the anger at what's going to happen as a result of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which have been passed, the first to abolish slavery, the second to ensure equal protection and citizenship rights for blacks, and the third, the 15th, for voting rights. Well, the Voting Rights Amendment, you not only have four million people who were previously enslaved, but now you have the black men among that group, and not black women, just black men, who are going to vote, and they send black representatives to Congress, Mm -hmm. they send them to state legislatures, and white people who believe that blacks are inferior, White people who believe that they should not have political power, they create the Ku Klux Klan. And that's That's the reaction. And so the roots of white supremacy are always, I think, in the roots of the fear of the loss of economic power, of political power, of social power.
0: Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Steve Luxenberg. He's a journalist and author of the book, Separate, the Story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's Journey from Slavery to segregation. Uh, We're talking about that book and the narrative style in which it was written. It's uh, told through the stories of the characters involved in Plessy v. Ferguson. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, Tell us what you think of the history of Plessy v. Ferguson. Is it a history that we live with now? Are there things that we can point to in modern America that remind us of the doctrine of separate but equal, which ruled from the time of Plessy up until Brown v. Board of Education, uh, another Supreme Court case decided in the 1950s. As always, the number on the phones is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Steve, before we get to the phones, uh, I want to talk a little about Henry Billings Brown. Uh, like uh, you and I, this is somebody with deep roots here in Detroit, and it's, uh, Detroit also plays a role in your book uh, because he spends so much of his early career here, uh, and in fact, he's buried here in Detroit uh, alongside his first wife.
1: So I'm a Detroit native, Mm -hmm. and so I'm uh, particularly interested in anything Detroit. (laughs) My first book, Annie's Ghosts, was about Detroit as well. Uh, another nonfiction book. So I was thrilled to be able to come back to Detroit and spend hours at the Detroit Public Library reading Henry Billings Brown's 20 years of pocket diaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not all that revealing sometimes. I was furious at him for writing about the weather, but never about his internal thoughts. (laughs) But Henry Billings Brown comes to Detroit in 1859, and he spends 31 years there before he is elevated to the Supreme Court. He, he builds a house on Jefferson Avenue. he marries a woman whose father is quite wealthy and it allows him to pursue his ambition, which is to go on the on the bench, which is not a lucrative profession. There are lawyers who are making a lot more money than Henry Billings Brown but he's a man who uh, he goes to yale uh, he goes to Yale and Harvard Law School, but like a lot of law schools uh, uh, students, he doesn't get a degree. Instead, he reads the law, and gets his uh, he passes the bar in Detroit, which he wasn't quite sure he wanted to stay in because it didn't feel as familiar to him as New England. Uh, Detroit uh, is a you know it's it's a northern state, but like a lot of the north, it, I write in the book that it's the free but conflicted North. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you one example. In 1868, there was a new constitution that, that was, re, it was revised and put before the voters. One of the provisions was to provide equal suffrage for black men to vote, equal suffrage. The constitution went down to defeat. And in the book, there's an image of the Detroit Free Press from April 7, 1868. And here are the headlines. Michigan revolutionized. The new constitution overwhelmingly defeated. Michigan believes this is a white man's government, mm-hmm. and that is over a news article. Yeah,
0: uh, well, I mean, and and we've talked before on this show about the history of the Detroit Free Press, why it was started, and what its point of view was uh, during the run up to the Civil War and and after. I mean, it was it was a very hostile publication to uh, the interests of black people for a really, really long time. And that's a really uh, good example of it.
1: Um, and, and like a lot of newspapers, um, you know, we think of newspapers today, we're in a period where we're questioning objectivity in, in reporting. But in the 19th century, there was no objectivity. <laughs> there was no question, right? <laughs> there, there, were, there were newspapers called the Arkansas Democrat, the Springfield Republican. They were the arms of the political parties, and they took that point of view. The Free Press, as you probably have had on your show, was the Democratic newspaper. Mm-hmm. The Tribune was the Republican newspaper, and, oh, and in, during this constitutional fight in 1868, they had warring news articles and editorials, with the uh, with the uh, Tribune saying, "Let's enact this constitution," and the, and the Free Press saying, "Let's not." Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Steve Luxenberg about his book, Separate The Story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's Journey from Slavery to Segregation. Uh, stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Uh, Tom in Northwest Detroit, Ed in Detroit, Brendan in Birmingham. We'll get to you. If you want to join them, as always, the number is 313 577 1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Steve Luxenberg. He is a journalist and author of the book Separate, the story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. He's also an an associate editor at The Washington Post and uh, an award-winning journalist there. He's uh, overseen reporting that has earned a lot of national honors, including two Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, He is a Detroit native, and uh, he began his career at the Baltimore Sun, where he worked for 11 years, another place that I worked. Uh, We're talking about uh, this idea of Plessy and separate but equal, whether it lives with us today. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Let's start with Brendan. In Birmingham, Brennan, welcome
2: to Detroit today. Hi, Stephen, thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, I just wanted to kind of raise the the point that's definitely not an original idea of mine. Uh, there's a lot of scholarship out there and a lot of writing on this, but without some kind of form of reparations or, or national reckoning, um, you know the stain of of slavery and racism is is going to Be here in America and we see examples every day of how uh, it's alive and well Um, and despite you know the the, uh, emancipation and and the civil rights movement and and uh, you know constant fighting for civil rights there's still in America this this undercurrent of of slavery and this mentality of white supremacy and white superiority that's that really sadly is extremely live and well in detroit in michigan you know all over the country so you know until there's something like what happened in germany after the holocaust or other places that have really taken seriously um racism and hate speech and and not allowing this this culture to continue until something like that happens i feel like while civil rights have improved immensely and and improved people's lives, Sadly, you know, you uh, feel like we're still
0: coming up short. I, I I understand your point very well, Brendan, and I, I really appreciate your calling uh, and and uh, reflecting that here on the show. Uh, Steve, one of the things that I found so interesting about the book was the way in which you talk about the complication of Reconstruction in this era, that uh, the Civil War amendments, which fundamentally altered our Constitution, a lot of people Uh, refer to them as a second founding, in fact, uh, that they they so changed the Constitution that they created another uh, country, another existence for us. Uh, They came up very short because of the way they were implemented. And the things that Brendan is talking about, this idea of white supremacy, the struggle with white supremacy, was the reason. uh, The the implementation of the ideas behind that through Reconstruction uh, met with Fierce, fierce opposition.
1: Well, you know, you're right about this being a second founding, or you're you're quoting other people, because if you think about the original Constitution with its three-fifths of a person clause embedded in there for political apportionment purposes, the 13th and 14th and 15th amendments are the opposite of that. Uh, It's being rejected. But, you know, if you look at those amendments, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not a constitutional historian. I am a journalist and storyteller. But they have two very important clauses that people ignore at the end of the 14th and 15th amendments, and they are that the Congress shall have the power to enforce this amendment by legislation. Yes. Now, why would you put that on there? Because the Congress well understood that if they didn't enact legislation, these amendments were going to be worthless. They needed to have teeth. And the radical Republicans, the Senator Sumner and Senator Lyman Turnbull of Illinois, they knew that the revolution was not finished, the fight for equal rights was not finished, and they would need to continue to enact legislation. So we think of the civil rights movement. When I hear the civil rights movement, that that wonderful phrase, I think of the 50s and 60s, of course, and I think of the 1950s and 60s. But there was a civil rights movement in the 1860s and 70s. Mm-hmm. They enacted three, Congress enacted three civil rights amendments, 1866, 1870, 1875, and if you read them, you will read the same language that is in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Wow. They were woke. They got it. They understood what <laughs> needed to be done. But you know that just like today, just because you enact something doesn't mean there's not resistance to it. And there was resistance, not only in, in among uh, the South, but among people who believe that whites were superior. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Again, thanks very much for the call. In uh, the comments, let's go to Christine in Detroit, Christine what's on your Hi, mind? Hi, how are you? Good, how are you?
3: I'm excellent, I'm excellent. First of all, thank you for having me on, and sure. I want to say I concur totally with Brendan, and, and I thank him for being truthful and honest. I am a African-American female, and I'm new to your show, new to listening, and I happen to just catch you and think that it's phenomenal that you have a dialogue about the truth of really what is a, a huge issue in America, which is still racism, and much like Brendan. Um, I feel as though we've fallen extremely short. Uh, a lot of things that we've done are just documented, but not real. They're not. They're not in, in real time. Mm-hmm. So, um, but my initial call was for um, the fact that a lot of things happened in Detroit in, in terms of civil rights that people don't know about. My father was very strong in civil rights, and one of those things was that. One of the first, the the first march before Washington that took place down Woodward Avenue with Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend mm-hmm. C.O. Franklin, mm-hmm. was the largest march ever held in the country at that time for civil rights. And uh, a lot of times it's bypassed and they go right to the Washington march, <laughs> forgetting that.
0: That um, it happened here you know, first, right? <laughs>
3: right. It happened here first. And Detroit was a primary place for that. I, I still have the posters that were on polls. Asking people to come out for one hundred thousand, which ended up being two hundred and sixty thousand people, mm-hmm. so uh, it was the largest march, and it was never really told correctly i 'm a strong advocate of not having a Black History Month but just an American history that is for you know includes everybody because this thing of uh, trying to say that there's something black people have seeded into the country in such a way that the contributions cannot be ignored. Right. And the, the fact that uh, we all need each other cannot be ignored. And so these things are extremely uh touching to me yeah. even at, at my age 58 <laughs> and knowing that it's 1963 the civil rights amendment came that blacks really didn't have rights until then and even still we're struggling yeah. so you know excuse me for rambling that's okay off, but I'm i really,
0: appreciate I'm, it I, I really, i'm really excited yeah well welcome to the welcome to the show christine uh, first of all as a new listener and and really appreciate your calls uh, and your and your comments there. Uh, that's that's very uh, helpful to the conversation that we're having. Uh, let's go to Tommy and Redford. Tommy, welcome to Detroit today.
4: Hello, thank you for having me, Stephen. Sure. Well, uh, I visited uh, the grave of Homer Plessy in Saint Louis Number no. One huh. Cemetery huh. in New Orleans, and the uh, the tour guide there had some really interesting thoughts on it. And it was a really beautiful site and a very beautiful <clears throat> memorial but he talked a lot about how the rail car system was more expensive in Louisiana as a result of racism and how they rejected racism because of it. Mm -hmm. And he kind of really tied that to the way that racism is always economic. Racism is always economically motivated. It always comes from this point of view of where they can make more money from whether or not by it's by excluding people to their profit or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, um, It's really interesting how they did that because that's still how it is today. Hmm. The uh, racism exists today because it is possible to keep people in extremely low wage jobs as a result of racism, or to keep (laughs) keep out this uh, ideology that there is this um, underclass, this uh, racially um, oppressed group that is always going to be struggling when (laughs) the infrastructure is there.
0: Yeah, Tommy, I, I. I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. uh, uh, Talking about Homer Plessy's grave in New Orleans reminds me of Henry Billings Brown's grave, which is right here in the city of Detroit in Elmwood Cemetery, where uh, we bury very prominent Detroiters and have for for three centuries. Uh, uh, Steve, I would imagine that uh, your research on this book took you to both of those places.
1: It did. Uh, it also took me to the places where there's been resistance in uh, the 19th century, mm-hmm. starting in Massachusetts. Um, I wanted to say very briefly that I went to the Massachusetts State Archives because the abolitionists of the 1840s, were the first to protest separation on railroad trains because at the dawn of the railroad age, the birth of separation is not in the South. Mm. It is in the North. It's in the North on the yeah. Eastern Railroad, running from Boston to Salem. And it just happens to be that the newest agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society is one Frederick Douglass, 24 years old, newly in Massachusetts, uh, fleeing his enslavement in Maryland. And he is uh, not easy to move because he's a big guy and he he grips his seat so hard, he says in his memoir, that he rips it off off of its fastenings. But in the meantime, there's also a very slightly built man named David Ruggles, a black abolitionist from New York. He's tossed off of the railroad car running down to New Bedford and he does something different from Douglas. He goes into court. And this is the predecessor to Homer Plessy. This is the way that resistors throughout the 19th century tried to fight separation, which is not just on the railroad cars, in the theaters, in the hotels, but by going into court. Yeah. He fails, but I think that Ruggles deserves a place mm. in, in our hearts mm-hmm. for having, been, having been, been courageous enough to go into court in the first place. Yeah.
0: Okay. Steve Luxemburg journalist and author of the book Separate, the Story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's Journey from Slavery to Segregation. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today.
1: Well, thanks, Stephen, for having me, and absolutely. thanks for having those callers. They were, they were good comments. Yeah,
0: we always get great callers. And next time you're in Michigan, uh, let us know. Well, I hope to be in
1: end. Michigan because I want to talk about this book there. It's a compelling story that needs to be told now. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Okay, that's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, the community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.